Now, I'm moving down to chapter 20. And here you have the final predictions concerning the judgment of Jerusalem. And we begin here with chapter 20 and go through chapter 24. There are two things I'd like to call your attention to in this section. Notice how long and drawn out is God's message to these people right down to the very day that this man Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city. God was willing to spare them. He would have removed Nebuchadnezzar back as he'd done the Assyrian previously at Jerusalem and wouldn't permit him to take the city. And he would have put this man Nebuchadnezzar back on his haunches. But the people didn't turn to God. And so judgment comes. But right down to the last, there was mercy to be extended to them. So you have now the final predictions concerning the judgment of Jerusalem. That's the first thing. Now, in this last chapter, and on the very day that the siege of Jerusalem began, the wife of Ezekiel died. Now, we'll pick that up in chapter 24. And this man was told not to mourn or to weep for her at all. That's remarkable, by the way. Very frankly, I consider this man Ezekiel a contrast to Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a woman's heart. He wept, and the message he gave broke his heart. I'll be honest with you. This man Ezekiel, he's almost like an actor playing a part. He goes through his part, but he's not moved by it. He seems to be pretty hard-boiled all the way through here. And he is actually now laying it on the line for these people. So that the people, having seen Jeremiah weep, the Lord Jesus was compared to Jeremiah, but nobody compared him to Ezekiel. Because now Ezekiel is speaking for God in such a way that he's actually here a mouthpiece for God. And that, I think, about sums it up. Now, we have here in chapter 20... What can be called, actually, a retrospect of the nation's sins? And we've been over this several times, but again, I want to show that it's not Ezekiel that's going over this. He's giving to them the Word of God. I'm of the opinion that this man would be very much like a Western Union boy. He brings you a message. It may be a message of joy, may be a message of sorrow, but the Western Union boy just delivers the message. You are the one that's moved by it. Now, that's, I think, more or less the position of Ezekiel. And that's the reason God asked him not to mourn for his wife, because he is to represent something. We'll see that when we get there. Now he's speaking for God. I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 20. It came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Now, you'll notice that more and more they are beginning to turn to this man Ezekiel. And they come now to get a word. And this was approximately around 590 and it's before the destruction of Jerusalem, which probably took place somewhere around 587 to about, maybe 588 to about 586. I don't think we can be dogmatic about that. Now, notice verse 2, "...then came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, And this man, Ezekiel, will have you know that he is not giving his word." He's giving to them God's word. Now he says, Son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel and say unto them. Now this is verse 3. Thus saith the Lord God, Are ye come to inquire of me? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Wilt thou judge them, son of man? Wilt thou judge them? Cause them to know the abomination of their father. Now, these people are coming to complain and criticize 
God, that he's unfair to judge them, and he's unfair to destroy Jerusalem. And it's beginning to sink in now. That's what's going to take place. Now, Ezekiel is to go over this ground again with them, because God doesn't mind stating his charge. And I'm not, as I say, I'm not going over it again. I am going to lift out certain things. He says here, verse 5, "...and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, In the day when I chose Israel, lifted up mine hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob, and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I'm the Lord your God." Now, he goes back, and at the very beginning, when he called these people, out of the land of Egypt, and brought them into the wilderness, and delivered them out of the slavery of Egypt. He goes back to that. And in verse 13, he says this, "...but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness." Now, in this section here, he's dealing with the generation that was born in the wilderness. This is the other generation died out. Now, this other group are there, and they are still rebellious against God. Now, I want to drop down and lift out verse 25, because this is an important verse. "...wherefore I gave them up also to statutes that were not good, and to ordinances by which they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts, in that they caused to pass through the fire all their firstborn." That's a strange passage of Scripture there, verse 25. And there's been a difference of opinion what it means. Let me make this suggestion to you. I think you find the same thing. But Paul said to the Corinthians that we are savor of life unto them that are saved and a savor of death unto them that perish. I think that when God gave them the Word and they rejected it, then he gave them over. And actually, the very law that was for good becomes bad because it condemns them now. And they're judged on the basis of it. And the same thing about the gospel today. You see, if you listen to the gospel and you reject the gospel, the thing is that it'd be better if you hadn't heard it to tell the truth. It'd be much better that you don't hear the gospel because of the fact that now... It's become a savor of death unto you. You could never go before God and say that you hadn't heard it. Now, he continues on. But with this tremendous condemnation, you'd think God is through with these people. But always are tucked in here in Ezekiel these marvelous, wonderful passages. Like we said at the beginning, at the darkest time of their history, that's when the light of prophecy shone the brightest. In verse 33... As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you, and I will bring you out from the peoples. I'll gather you out of the countries in which ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out. Now, he says, I intend to bring you back into that land. God's purpose with the nation Israel will yet be fulfilled. And he's going to be declared right by those today that think that he's not right. Now, the very interesting thing is that this chapter concludes in verse 45 here and on. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward the south. Drop thy word toward the south and prophesy against the forest. Some think it means Judea or Judah. And others think it means the Negev. Well, at least it's south. And if you've ever been through that Negev, I wonder what happened to the forest. God judged it. God said he'd remove it from that land. That land was the land of milk and honey. But I want you to know something. You can't come to that conclusion when you look at it today. It's not only not the land of milk and honey today, it doesn't even have enough water. They need more water over there. So that this is a remarkable prophecy, though. God's not through with these people, nor with that land.
Now, friends, we continue on here with this 21st chapter of Ezekiel in this last prophetic section that deals with Jerusalem and Israel. That is the final judgment that was coming upon the city of Jerusalem. Now, we've been in this for quite a while, and it will continue through chapter 24. And maybe it has been tedious and tiring to some. It may be positively boring to others. And there would be always a tendency for me to move over this rather hurriedly, and we are going to have to pick up our momentum shortly in this book. But I have gone through this in a a rather meticulous manner because of, I think, two very definite reasons. Number one is, this is an area in the Word of God, there's a complete blackout. When was the last time that you heard a message on Ezekiel, unless it was the 38th and 39th of Ezekiel, or when was the last time you studied the book? And many have already said this is a book they had never looked at before. And the other reason is that this book is very pertinent for us in this hour in which we're living today. There is a direct application of this. Although the words of Ezekiel were spoken many years ago, but it was the Word of God. He has monotonously told us. The Word of the Lord came unto him. This wasn't his idea at all. And this man is giving out the Word of God. And since it is the Word of God, it always has an application. And I personally feel that it's pertinent for us in this day and this nation in which we live. And for that reason, I think it's well to spend a little time with it. And then, again, here is a book like Revelation that the liberal likes to say, well, it's way out in left field and you can't understand it and you ought not to study it and it doesn't have a message for us today. Well, may I say to you, I trust by now that you've discovered that the visions here are tremendous. And I do not propose to have the final word on that great first chapter of the vision of the glory of God. I just stand in awe and wonder there. But we're down now at the nitty-gritty where the rubber meets the road. And this man's very practical And I do not want to adopt a super pious attitude, but this is not difficult. This is something that's very practical for us today. Now, with that in mind, I want to continue on here because this man again here in the 21st chapter, he's making it, I think, very clear to these people that the king of Babylon is going to remove the last king of the Davidic line until Messiah comes. Now, because of that, this becomes one of the most important chapters that we'll find in the book of Ezekiel, and yet it's not dealt with, as far as I can tell, very often. Now, I want to move into this chapter here. He says, as he is mononymously said, and we'll say it three times in this chapter, he's going to say, verse 1, "...and the word of the Lord came unto me, saying..." Now, there's only one alternative for you. Either the Lord said it, you agree to that, or you take the position that Ezekiel is lying about this. There's no middle ground. You have to say one or the other. Well, I take the position that the Lord said this to him and that he's not giving his viewpoint. My feeling is that Ezekiel's feeling did not enter too much into his message. This man Jeremiah was overwhelmed by it. His feelings entered into every word that he said. I don't think that's true of this man. And you say, can you support that? And I can Remember at the beginning, when God gave him his commission, he says, you're going to speak to a rebellious people, a rebellious nation, and you're going to speak to a hard-headed people. 
And he says, Ezekiel, I'm going to make your head harder than theirs is. And you know, a little of that hardness got down to his heart. And he could lay it on the line for them. And it makes you actually love him for it. I think that if his feelings had entered into him, this man would have been crushed by the message that he have to get. Now, will you notice here the attitude of the people to him now? He's been speaking in parables. He's been acting them out. We saw one that looked like he was giving them a TV commercial for a shaving soap or razor or something. And you'd never think that. And then the idea of him digging through his house and coming up out in the street, that is a crowd getter. But it does sound rather strange, and you find him enacting out a great deal of this. Now he says here, verse 2, "...Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel." Now, we have him here telling them now about the impending judgment. "...And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord." Behold, I'm against thee. I'll draw forth my sword out of its sheath, will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. The judgment now is apparently inevitable. Up to these last chapters, the mercy of God is extended. But now judgment is coming, and there's no other apparently alternate to it. And God says, I'm against you. That's the first time he said that about his city of Jerusalem. And now, he says, I'm going to cut off the righteous and the wicked. Well, that sounds strange, does it not? Who are the righteous? Those who say they are. The church members. The ones that in that day were not saved at all. But they went through the ritual of it. They were religious. A great many today have the band-aid of religion over the sore of sin. And they need to pull that old Band-Aid off and get that sore lance because it'll kill you. It's cancer. And you just don't cure cancer by putting a Band-Aid on it. And you don't cure sin by becoming religious. That's not the way that you overcome. And therefore, God says, I'm cutting it off now. I'm moving in, and with my sword, I intend to destroy the city. Now he tells this man to do something that I'm not prepared to say whether his feelings are in it or not. He's told to do it. He certainly didn't do it naturally. So I think he's acting apart from that. Now, God says, I'm going to draw out the sword out of its sheath all the way from the south to the north. That's in verse 4. That all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of its sheath it shall not return any more. You see, the time has come. Now he says, Sigh therefore, thou son of man, with breaking heart and with bitterness, sigh before their eyes. Now I wonder if he isn't actually putting on an act here, but he's revealing the heart of God, if you please. And it shall be when they say unto thee, Why sighest thou? that thou shalt answer for the tidings, because it cometh, and every heart shall melt, and all hands shall be feeble, and every spirit faint. Now, here we have it again. He's told to do this thing. And these people have complained about him giving them parables. Remember verse 49 of the last chapter said, Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, they say to me, Doth he not speak parables? We don't get his message. They didn't want to get it, of course. But they were complaining about that. They didn't like to be told that things were wrong. We sometimes think that the parables of the Lord Jesus are rather obtuse, that they are difficult to understand. They are not if you want to understand them. The problem's always been, do you really want to understand? Because the religious rulers in that day, they understood what he was saying. That's the reason they hated him, because he was speaking judgment of them. Now in verse 8 here, "...again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying..." Just in case that you didn't quite get the message, why, he's going to repeat it again. Now he comes back to this matter of the sword. 
Son of man, prophesy, and say, Thus saith the Lord, Say, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished. It is sharpened to make a great slaughter. It is polished that it may glitter. And here you have the fact that God says that he's going to judge the city. And I'm perfectly willing to say that this is a frightful and fearful word. And it comes from the lips of God, the one who had yearned over Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he loved the city. But how many times he said, I'd have gathered you and you would not. Your house is left and you're desolate. And if you want to know how terrible that judgment is... Read what happened when Titus the Roman came in 70 A.D. and leveled that city, just as Nebuchadnezzar is going to do here. Now, God makes it very clear, and this is not something that was brand new by any means. You remember that Isaiah, and when we studied that prophecy, he said the same thing. In Isaiah We have this statement, "...for by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many." And again in 2417 in Isaiah, "...fear in the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth." And this man is to sigh because of that. And why? Well, because the Lord Jesus said, "...the day is coming." Men's hearts, failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Because of the judgment of God of Jerusalem, this man is to sigh and to weep over it, for God now has drawn the sword of judgment. Now, that's not popular today, but that is the reason this book may not be popular. Now, will you notice verse 18? The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying... Believe me, he's not letting us forget that. He says, "...also thou, son of man, mark two ways, that the sword of the king of Babylon may come." In other words, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to decide which way he was going to come to Jerusalem. Now, do you think he's going to turn to the Lord? No, he's a pagan. He's going to use divination. He's going to use necromancy. Notice this. Verse 21, "...for the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He made his arrows bright. He consulted with images. He looked in the liver." These are methods that were used then and actually are used today. And the better translation here, it means instead of he made his arrows bright, he shook his arrows to and fro. This was sort of like rolling dice or of looking at tea leaves. You drop the arrows down, see which way they point, and which direction he should go to Jerusalem. He's an entirely a pagan heathen king. Now, God will overrule that. That's the important thing to know. Now, here is a remarkable prophecy in Scripture. This is tremendous. He says in verse 25, "...and thou profane, wicked prince of Israel..." whose day is come. This is it. The time now has come. He's talking of that profane, wicked prince, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Zedekiah in particular here. Now, whose day has come when iniquity shall have an end. This is the end time. And you find that at the end of this age, the Scripture has a great deal to say about it in the time of the iniquity of the end. And he uses that expression here, looking on to the end times. Also, Daniel used it, the time of the end. And the Lord Jesus spoke of it. What is the sign of thy coming in the end of the age? And he answered that for them. And we find that Paul had a great deal to say about that in Second Thessalonians. We'll not take time to go into that. And this man, Zedekiah, therefore, is a picture of that wicked prince, the false messiah. We call him the Antichrist that's coming at the time of the end. What a picture that you have here. And he says, Thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem. Take off his crown. Take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. 
Now, he is to be brought low. And the thing that is going to happen now is, there will not be another king to sit upon the throne of David until Shiloh come, until the Messiah comes. Now, notice, this prophecy is remarkable. He says, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he comes whose right it is. That's the Lord Jesus. And I will give it him. Therefore, from Zedekiah down to the Lord Jesus, there was no one in the line that ever sat on that throne. No one would ever be able to. And the Lord Jesus is the only one since then. And he's sitting yonder right now at God's right hand, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. When he comes to this earth to rule, I say to you, this is a remarkable prophecy. And it began way over yonder in Genesis 49, 10, when Jacob was giving the prophecy concerning each son that would eventuate and become a tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says in verse 10 of Genesis 49, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah." That means the king, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, Shiloh here means until he come, the one that's coming. And that's the way the Lord Jesus Christ was introduced. That's the reason John the Baptist says, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? In the person of the one that's come, that the prophets had all spoken of. And Ezekiel here has one of the most remarkable prophecies of all. Now, you have that expression again concerning the judgment of the Ammonites. And we have that picture here, the type given of the Antichrist who's coming. Verse 29, the last part of the verse, it says, "...the wicked whose day is come, when their iniquity shall have an end." And Paul says in Second Thessalonians that at the brightness of his coming, that he will put down this enemy in the last days. Verse 31, "...and I will pour out mine indignation upon thee, I will blow against thee in the fire of my wrath, and deliver thee into the hand of brutal man, and skillful to destroy. Thou shalt be for fuel to the fire. Thy blood shall be in the midst of the land. Thou shalt be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken it. That generation is to go into captivity. That'll be the end of that generation as far as they are concerned. It'll be their children who will return back to the land. Now, this section that we are in here, it began back at chapter 21. It has been a very remarkable section because these are the last prophecies concerning the judgment that was coming upon the nation Israel. Now, Ezekiel's messages at the beginning were to the first two delegations that had gone in to captivity because they held on to the belief that God would never destroy the temple. It was his sanctuary. His glory had been there. And they knew that. And they held on to that. And the false prophets encouraged them in this unbelief and made them think it was not necessary for these people to come back to God, to give up idolatry, and to give up their evil ways. And they went on, the false prophets encouraging them in that. I think today one of the most subtle things that takes place is the fact that a great many men are eulogized even before they die and then at their funeral, and they may have been godless, blasphemers, but some preacher pushes them right into heaven. May I say to you, without having God's mind on the matter, I think we should be very careful what we say about these folks, because the false prophets were doing the same thing in that day, and how tragic it was. And it gives the unsaved who come to a funeral today or hear a message the idea that their little goodness, and they measure it by some person's life that they know, and he's a great sinner, they don't think they need a Savior. My friends, the 
fact of the matter is that I'm afraid that today sometimes a gospel message is given in one place for the saints and that it's not given in the place where it ought to be given when they man us out in the world, especially at a funeral or speaking to a group of unsaved. He trims his message to please the crowd. Now, this man Ezekiel has really been putting it on the line. I think I should say two things that we've already seen that are remarkable prophecies. You'll recall that in chapter 20, he gave a prophecy concerning the Negev. That is the southern part of that land around Beersheba, all of that territory. And it was a prophecy that said, And say to the forest of the Negev, I'll kindle a fire in thee. Well, I've been through that area a couple of times. And I want to tell you, that's as bald-headed as a doorknob. There's no vegetation there of any size whatsoever. I never saw a tree that was any bigger than my arm in the entire place. And talk about a forest, they just not down in that section at all. What happened to it? God judged. And you can take a look there today that he did a pretty good job of judging. Then we've seen over here in chapter 21, that remarkable prophecy about the fact that there'll be no one to sit on David's throne until the Lord Jesus comes. That's what the angel meant when he said to Mary, I'm going to give unto him the throne of his father David. You see, even at Christmas time, it's nice to have Ezekiel around to find out what even the angel was talking about. We need the background of these prophets that I think is so needful today. Now, in chapter 22, we find here the abominations of Jerusalem that are listed for us here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, that's chapter 22, verse 1. Verse 2, Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt show her all her abominations. Now, it's called a bloody city. That is the thing that Isaiah said way back in the first chapter, verse 21. He spoke there, but she had become a harlot, and murderers lodged in it, speaking of Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus wept over the city and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. And after all, didn't they slay him also? Turned him over to the Romans who did the killing job. And it was Stephen who said to them, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one of whom ye are now the betrayers and murderers. And they cried out, His blood be upon us and upon our children. The Lord here says, It's the bloody city. Then he mentions here in verse 6, Behold the princes of Israel. And he is talking, of course, about the citizens that are there and the princes. And then again he mentions them in verse 27, her princes in her midst are like wolves, ravening the prey. And Paul warned the church of wolves in sheep clothing, and they are there today. Verse 25, now also there is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst of her. The false prophets were saying everything is fine, getting along nicely. Verse 26, her priests have violated my law. Now, Jerusalem is to be judged. Why? Why is it called the bloody city? Because of the princes, the prophets, and the priests. Now, verse 30, he says here, as he concludes this chapter, "...and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them." And friends, I don't know about you, but I thank God he found a man to stand between me, my sin, and a holy God. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ, and God sees us in him. Thankful for the man that stands in the gap today.
Now in chapter 23, we have something here that's quite interesting. Here goes Ezekiel again, way out on a limb right to the left, if you please. He's way out in left field here. The parable of two sisters. Now that's something. And of all things, one was named Ohola, and the other was Aholiab. And I think that when he gave this parable, but people actually began to smile. They said, where in the world is this fellow going with a story like that? Well, he's going to give them the parable now, chapter 23. And here we go again, friends. The word of the Lord came again unto me. Now, this man, Ezekiel, just didn't make this up. God gave him this message. He says, son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they committed harlotries in Egypt. They committed harlotries in their youth. There were their breasts pressed. There they bruised the breasts of their virginity. They no longer virgins, but they became harlots. What in the world is he talking about? Listen to him. And the names of them were Ohola the elder and Oholibiah, her sister. And they were mine, and they bore sons and daughters. These were their names. Now, what's he talking about? Samaria is a hola. That is, the northern kingdom of Israel is a hola. And Jerusalem, Judah in the south, is a holiab. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, we have to first get the meaning of their names. The meaning of a holiab, that is, of Judah and Jerusalem in the south, is my tent is in her. And who's saying that? God's saying that. God's saying, my tent is in her. That is, it was in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, that there was there this wonderful temple of Solomon, patterned after the tabernacle in the wilderness. And that was where the people approached God. Wonderful. But what does Ahola mean? Well, that means her own tent. The northern kingdom rebelled, and you remember old Jeroboam put up two golden calves, one in Bethel, the other up in Samaria, and tried to keep the people from coming south. Now, it's very easy for the southern kingdom and the prophets there to say, oh, God's going to judge these golden calves up there, and he surely did. But what about the southern kingdom? He's going to judge it too, because they going through the ritual of a dead religion, thought that they were right with God and they were living in sin. And today, one of the things that is cutting the nerve of the spiritual life, even of fundamental Christians and fundamental churches, is the lives of some of the members. Oh, my friend, somebody says, well, I'm saved by grace. You sure are, and that's the only way you'll ever get saved. The only way I'll ever get saved, I know that. God's not saving by grace, then I couldn't possibly be saved. But that doesn't mean you're not to live for him. And that doesn't mean he's not going to judge you. And that doesn't mean that you can actually kill the spiritual life of a church. These are two girls that you ought to get acquainted with. Ohola and Aholiab. Aholabab. What names of all things? And this man, I think, attracted a little attention by that. You know, I think of that whimsical story that comes out of my Southland. A poor tenant farmer, we call them sharecroppers, down there, and croppers is the name given to them. He had one of these little donkeys, burrows, some folk call them. And they had him hitched up to a wagon in which one line was leather and the other was a cotton rope. And a friend wanted to ride with him one day. And he told him, fine, get in, I'll take you to town. And so the fellow sat down in the spring wagon. And then he got out, the owner, and took a two-by-four out of his wagon, went up there in front and hit this mule on the head. And this man was thunderstruck. He couldn't believe. Well, he says, why in the world do you do that? He says, well, I always have to get his attention before I start. And why is Ezekiel doing this? Because he's dealing with a lot of hard-headed people. God said that. And he does this to get their attention. 
We sometimes criticize some preachers for using sensational messages or sensational subjects, and I always have great sympathy for them. How else are you going to get people to listen today? Because they don't want to hear the same message again and again. They'll sing, tell me the old, old story, but they don't want to hear it. Maybe they want you to sing it to them. I don't know, but they don't want to hear it. So that this man is using unusual methods. Now, the Assyrians, they've already taken the northern kingdom. Verse 12, she doted upon the Assyrians, her neighbors, captains and rulers, clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men. Now, this, by the way, is quite unusual in this 23rd chapter, refers back actually to a historical event that took place when old King Ahaz was on the throne. If you'd go back and read Second Kings sixteen ten through 20, you'd pick up this incident that he went up to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And he thought that was the prettiest altar he'd ever seen. So he sent Arijah the priest to get a picture of it, the pattern of it, and to make one like it. You see, he went in for this type of thing, uh, attempting to improve the worship, you know, as if that had something to do with the souls of men. Well, God noted that, and he's judged that northern kingdom for it. Now we have here the Babylonian invasion that's now going to take place, and there's no alternative for it. And you find that he's judging both the northern and the southern kingdom, because both had turned away from the living and true God. One went brazenly into idolatry, and the other pretended to worship the living and true God. And friends, it might be well today for God's people, all of us for that matter, Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not. Somebody says, don't you believe in the security of the believer? I sure do, but I believe in the insecurity of make-believers. And we need to examine ourselves. When you go to church, do you really worship God? What does the Lord Jesus mean to you? Oh, to be drawn to the person of Christ and to love him and to serve him. How close are you to him? Do you really love him? He doesn't want your service unless you do it. He said to Simon Peter, you love me? And until he could say it, he says, now you can go feed the sheep. I'll use you. That's the most important thing of all. Now here in the 24th chapter, we come to it. And we have here another parable, and he's going to end these parables. That is a section of them right here for us. And in this section, why, we have the parable of the boiling pot and the death of the prophet's wife. And God's going to use both to speak to the people. Now, will you notice, I'm reading chapter 24, verse 1. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... Now, this is the first time he's dated his message. Why? Because at that very moment, Nebuchadnezzar was breaking through the wall in Jerusalem. And they didn't have television there. It wasn't coming by a little fellow out there in orbit conveying the message over to Babylon. The only way he could get it was by God revealing it to him. The liberal has always had a problem with this. One of the liberals said this. He says, this verse forces on us in the clearest fashion the dilemma, either Ezekiel was a deliberate deceiver or he was possessed of some kind of second sight. He sure was. God's sight was his second sight. Liberal doesn't recognize that, of course. Well, he got the word, and now this parable of the boiling pot. Well, here it is, verse 6. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it, and whose scum is not gone out of it. Bring it out piece by piece. Let no lot fall upon it. Now, he calls it again the bloody city, 
and they are in a pot, and there's scum in the pot. Now, what is that scum? The pot is the city of Jerusalem. The citizens were in it, in that pot. And their sin is the scum that's in it. Now, sometimes you hear somebody say to another person or concerning a certain people, they are the scum of the earth. You want to know what God says? God says, your sin and my sins are scum of the earth. He never said that group of people over there that's not in our crowd is the scum of the earth. He said, your sin and my sin. And listen, we are all in the same pot. Jerusalem is now the world. And for you and me today, it's the world. I get a little weary today of all of this talk about the different ethnic groups. What do you mean different ethnic groups? We're all in the same pot. And we're the scum of the earth. And I don't care who you are. Your sin is the scum of the earth. Now, I don't know how you can say it any stronger than that. Now, verse 15, "...also the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shalt thy tears run down." Now, apparently this young prophet had married, I think, a lovely, beautiful young Israelitish girl. And they loved each other. And then down there in captivity, she took sick and died. Now, I imagine it was a heartbreak, but this man's still acting. God says, even in the time of death, what is he to do? He says to him, Forbear to cry and make no mourning for the dead. Bind thy turban upon thee and put on thy shoes upon thy feet. Cover not thy lips and eat not the bread of man. Don't act like you're mourning at all. And the people didn't understand it. The people came to him. They said unto him, What in the world does this mean? You talk about a boiling pot with scum on it. Now your wife has died and you're not even mourning. What kind of man are you? And all of this he's doing to get a message through to them. Why? Verse 24, it's the key to the book. Thus Ezekiel is unto you a sign. According to all that he hath done shall ye do. And when this cometh, ye shall know that I am the Lord God. That moment, Jerusalem was being destroyed, and word came to them later on concerning the fact that the city was being destroyed. Over in the 33rd chapter, verse 21, "...and it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity in the tenth month, in the fifth day of the month, that one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me, saying, The city is smitten." Into this camp there came these stragglers. Oh, how terrible they looked. And they said, we've escaped from the city. The false prophets are wrong. It's burn up. That temple is leveled. The city is debris and ashes. And the interesting thing, Ezekiel is right. And don't mourn. Why? Why not mourn for it? Well, the reason that you're not to mourn is this. Verse 27, "...in that day shall thy mouth be opened to him who is escaped, and thou shalt speak, and be no more dumb, and thou shalt be a sign unto them, that they shall know that I am the Lord." Now, what is the message here? The message is just simply this. The false prophets were right in this. That's God's house. That's God's city. That was God's witness to the world. But you see, they had failed. And when they failed, God says now, I will even destroy my own witness on the earth. This is, I think, without doubt, one of the most remarkable prophecies that you have in the Word of God. And actually here, it's a strange position that we find here. God is saying, I want you to know that the city is destroyed. Your people, the rest of them, sons and daughters that are left, they're being brought into captivity. And there's no use weeping. There's no use howling to me now. <laughs> I did it. I'm responsible for it. And you remember what the Lord Jesus said to each one of the seven churches, and he's saying it to the churches today, to those of us that are believers. He says, 
You better be careful. I'll come and remove your lampstand. And the lampstand of all seven of those churches, it was removed. <laughs> Ought to be a message to us. And I don't care who you are, where you are, friend. If you're not going to give out the Word of God, he's already said it. If you're not going to stand for God today and you make a profession of it, he's removing your lampstand and be no light there. What a statement. Somebody says, my, this is strong. This doesn't sound like the lovey-dovey, sloppy stuff that we've been hearing. No, this is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, he's just speaking for God. He says, the word of the Lord came unto me. Now, friends, if you have any opposition to what we've been saying, I've been saying what's here. I would suggest you take it up with the Lord. Don't take it up with me. He said it. I didn't say it. And remember, he's always right, and we're always wrong. Remember that when you go to him in prayer. We have come to a section here, beginning with chapters 25, going through chapters 32, and we are actually dealing here with prophecies concerning the nations that were round about. We'll have in chapter 25 here prophecies against Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia. All of those, as far as we're concerned today, have long since disappeared from the face of the earth. And the prophecies have been literally fulfilled. Then in chapters 26 and 28, we have the prophecies against Tyre. And then in chapters 29 through 32, prophecies against Egypt. Now, Ezekiel, up to this point, he has been giving out prophecies concerning Jerusalem and the land of Israel, because the final deportation of the children of Israel has not yet arrived in that land. And these people held on to this faint hope, and they were urged on and encouraged by the false prophets, that God would not destroy Jerusalem, and that the land of Israel would remain. After all, wasn't that his method of communication to the world? And may I say, they were startled. They were dumbfounded when word came, as it did. And this man, Ezekiel, will record it when we get to 33:21. It came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity in the tenth month, in the fifth day of the month that one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me, saying, The city is smitten. When that word came, and the headline in the Babylonian bugle read, Jerusalem destroyed. And then the byline underneath was Jerusalem, and it said on this day, Nebuchadnezzar with his armies entered the city of Jerusalem, having breached the wall. Now, may I say to you, this man Ezekiel is proven right. And from here on, he'll not be giving you prophecies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, because he's not writing history. He's writing prophecies. So he turns to these surrounding nations. Now, let's look at this for just a moment. There's a tremendous message here for us. There is God's city in ruins. And I see standing over that city a man by the name of Jeremiah, tears coursing down his cheeks, and he has a broken heart. And he's the one that mirrors the one that will be coming in, oh, just uh, about 500 and some odd years. And he too will sit over Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and he will weep over Jerusalem because destruction is coming again to the city, because they have turned their back on the living and the true God. Now, the thing that was happening, or at least had happened, here's another prophet. And I don't think he's weeping. And I tell you why. I know he's not weeping, because at the same time his lovely wife died. And the one that the Scripture makes it very clear, he loved her. And he's told not to mourn. He's on the surface, hard-boiled. Well, God said he'd be that way. Now, this reveals the two sides of God in this matter. And we need that today. God is tender-hearted. 
like Jeremiah, the Lord Jesus, and how tender-hearted he was, merciful and kind, not willing that any should perish, and he died for us on the cross. But listen to him speaking to these cities that rejected him. Woe unto you, Capernaum, you'll be cast down to hell. Say, that's strong language coming from the gentle Jesus. And then again he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he denounced them in a way, my friend, that makes your hair curl. Let me tell you the two sides of God. And those two sides are true today. We get just a warped view of him when we run around saying, God is love, God is love. That's true. Don't lose sight of it. But God is holy. God is righteous. And God will judge. And if you reject his salvation, well, the Lord Jesus said, No man cometh to the Father but by me. You're not rushing into heaven, my friend, on the little love boat today. You are only going to come there because Christ shed his blood, gave his life that you might have eternal life and be covered with the righteousness of Christ, standing complete and acceptable in him. Now, this gives us today a wrong, warped view of God. I always think in this connection of that judge years ago out in West Texas. He had a reputation for making quick decisions, And others just didn't move that fast. Somebody asked him one day, says, what is the secret of you making quick decisions? Well, he says, I'll tell you what I do. I just listen to the defense, and then I hand in a decision. And this friend was startled. He said to him, don't you ever listen to the prosecution? Well, he said, I used to. But he said, that always confused me. May I say to you, A lot of confused folk today running around talking about the love of God. Don't you forget, he'll judge also. And that's maybe the reason Ezekiel is a closed book, a sealed book to so many folk. And liberal ministers encourage that. They say, well, nobody can understand it. Well, you sure can't understand it until you study the book. We've had a remarkable principle laid down here so far, and I hope we don't miss its message. It's for us today. Now, here we come to the judging of these nations that were round about, and I'm not going to be very long with them, I can assure you, because they've long since passed off of the stage, but they are to return. They're a very interesting thing, and only God can bring them back. You find here the judgment, first of all, of the Ammonites. Well, the Ammonites have a pretty bad beginning to begin with. Their country was along the Dead Sea, and we've already had prophecies concerning them that they were to go into captivity, which they did. They were made subject to Nebuchadnezzar. They are the result. They go back to Ammon, son of Lot by his own daughter, the incestuous relationship. And you have that same thing in Moab. And you have here a prophecy against Moab. And God says, in each case, I'm going to judge them. In verse 7 of chapter 25, Behold, therefore, I will stretch out mine hand upon thee. Now, this is Ammon. I'll deliver thee for a spoil to the nations. I'll cut thee off from a people. Why does God do that? And thou shalt know that I'm the Lord. And God's judgment is for that. Now, we're going to see that, especially in a prophecy for the future that concerns, I think, Russia in the 38th and 39th of Ezekiel. We'll be there one of these days. Now, the prophecy concerning Moab here. Moab was also on the east of Israel. But it was along the northern part of the Dead Sea. And this is the land that Ruth the Moabitess came from. And David was an ancestor of hers, or she was an ancestor of David. I should say, let's not get it mixed up. And then we find also that the Lord Jesus Christ came in that line. Read the first chapter of Matthew, and Ruth's name is mentioned there in the genealogy. Now, we have a prophecy here concerning Edom. Now, who is Edom? Edom came from Esau. And we are going to see that 
when we get to the rock-hewn city of Petra, which we've, by the way, already had, and I went into detail concerning that. Now, we'll probably be coming back to it, however, and we'll have actually one book that will be devoted to that, and that will be the little book of Obadiah. Now, you also, beginning with verse 15, you have the prophecy here against Philistia. The Philistines have disappeared. I haven't seen a Philistine in a long time myself, and they're not in that land today. And this judgment also was literally fulfilled. Now, I'm not dealing with this because read it, and this was literally fulfilled. And that, of course, causes the critic, the liberal critic, oh, he wrote this after it happened. Well, that's what he says. And he just didn't happen to be around at that time, and these prophecies were fulfilled after Ezekiel, of course. 